It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's a ceremony going on. It's the 19th of July, 1980, in the middle of a giant stadium with 100,000 people cheering from the stands. A group of men in Russian traditional dress are dancing in a circle. The ground beneath them is covered in this lurid green carpet, which is made even more lurid by the neon quality of the footage, which is now about 40 years old. And to be totally honest, this whole scene is quite hard to describe without the help of psychedelic drugs. Because soon, concentric circles of gymnasts are dancing around a circular platform in the middle of the stadium. And there's probably about 500 of them. And the crowd is going wild. And then a load of men wearing white unitards come out. And yet it gets weirder because then more dancers emerge and they make a giant blooming flower with their bodies. It is utterly surreal and spectacular. And all of this, this celebration of Russian culture, is the opening ceremony of the 1980 Moscow Olympic Games. A moment of Soviet celebration on steroids in more ways than one. Because these were no ordinary Olympics, if such a thing exists. Today, the Olympic movement faces the biggest crisis in its 86 years. So I need to rewind. Back to the beginning of the ceremony. To that moment when the athletes from all seven continents emerge onto the track and walk, parading their national flags, signaling their intent to compete. Except that in 1980, well, there were a few countries missing. America, China, the Philippines, Argentina and Canada, they all boycotted the Moscow Games. Several other countries, including the UK, sent substantially smaller teams than they would have usually. Why? Well, politics had collided into sport and it seemed that politics might have won. I'm Basha Cummings, and in this slow newscast, I'm going back to 1980 to tell you the story of a myth 
of the purity of sport and how that myth crashed into a great ideological battle between East and West, capital and communism. The story of the lost games and what it tells us as we gear up for a new fight about the political power of the Olympics. So my first job in journalism was actually on a cycling magazine. I was a sub and mostly I checked for spelling mistakes and each month I'd get sent a stack of articles about the greats of the Tour de France and the Giro d'Italia and about new bikes and kit and new riders. And it was back then, in my early 20s, that I really fell in love with these sorts of stories. These great dramas from sporting history and all that wild ambition and pain and yeah, politics of it all. And of course, the absurdity, which is always a key component. And it's a love that's shared by Simon Barnes. Hello, I'm Simon Barnes. I work as a writer. I've been writing about sport for uh, several hundred years. I've worked for The Times for a number of years, covered loads and loads of major events, including seven uh, Summer Olympic Games. I wanted to speak to Simon because the Olympics are in his blood now. He's been intoxicated by them. The Olympics is the best of the best of the best. And if that doesn't inspire you, then you don't have the sporting spirit in your veins. It's an absolute peak experience. He's witnessed some of the most memorable Olympic moments from the last four decades. Michael Johnson winning the 200 metres in Atlanta in 1996. Fuming Shah winning gold medals in the diving. <laughs> Beijing, that was where there's a fellow called Usain Bolt. Winning by daylight and setting a world record 9.68. The wind is okay. New world record. But actually, I wanted to talk to Simon about an edition of the Games that he didn't cover as a journalist. It's one that he watched just as a normal punter on his TV with his family. Moscow, 1980. The concept of Olympism was created more than 120 years ago by a man called Pierre de Coubertin. Coubertin was something of an idealist. He thought, quite simply, that you could make the world a better place with sport. And as he was planning the modern Olympics in the 1890s and writing an Olympic charter, he wrote that the Games are a philosophy of life, exalting and combining in a balanced whole the qualities of body, will and mind. Olympic principles, he said, were about social responsibility and about a respect for universal, fundamental ethics, non-discrimination, humanism and solidarity. And over the decades since those principles and that charter have been upheld, that the Olympics are supreme, that they operate above something so base as politics. But in 1980, the 19th modern Olympics and the first to be held behind the Iron Curtain, well, these were mired in 47 years of tension and paranoia and proxy conflicts. And from where Simon was sitting, and from really where anyone in the West was sitting, Russia, 
were the baddies. It was us and them. You only have to watch uh, James Bond to to work that out. It was our gang and their gang. The world was split right down the middle. And it, it was a madness to which we were accustomed and which we saw every sign of continuing for the foreseeable future. And in December 1979, the atmosphere shifted from cold to, if not hot, then at least a lot hotter. 50,000 heavily armed Soviet troops have crossed the border and are now dispersed throughout Afghanistan. On Christmas Eve, Soviet troops crossed the border into Afghanistan, where a civil war was raging between communist forces and the Mujahideen. The Soviets invaded under a political doctrine that had been shaped by Leonid Brezhnev, the leader of the Soviet Union, which stated that a threat to socialism in any of the Soviet bloc nations was a threat to all, and so justified military intervention. And this Christmas intervention, well, it was a miscalculation. The West did notice, and no one more so than Jimmy Carter, the President of the United States. By this point, he'd been in office for almost three years, and he couldn't afford for this invasion to go unchallenged, which is where the Olympics comes in. Jimmy Carter, President of the United States, wanted the Olympic Games cancelled. The Olympic Games is not a national political organisation, and declined to do so. The, the Olympic Games gets its power from holding the Games, so you're not going to get them voting themselves out by not holding the Games, so that was a non-starter. He then tried to get them to shift the Games. That would have been a major political decision and would probably have involved lots of nations leaving the International Olympic Association, so that was uh, not going to happen either. So having attempted those two things, all he could say says, well, if I can't cancel the party or move the party, I shan't come to the party. I've sent a message today to the United States Olympic Committee spelling out my own position that unless the Soviets withdraw their troops within a month from Afghanistan, that the Olympic Games be moved from Moscow to an alternate site or multiple sites or postponed or cancelled. As pressure mounted, Jimmy Carter announced a boycott. And I have notified the Olympic Committee that with Soviet invading forces in Afghanistan, neither the American people nor I will support sending an Olympic team to Moscow. And this sort of political posturing, it wasn't unusual in the Olympics. In 1948, Japan and Germany were banned from the London Games because of, you know, the small matter of World War II. And Egypt, Lebanon and Iraq boycotted the Melbourne Olympics in 56 over the Suez Crisis. And in 76, around two dozen predominantly African countries boycotted the Montreal Games. But what was different this time in 1980 was the scale of the political intervention. The Americans had never missed an Olympics before, not even when it was being held in Nazi Germany. But now the Games were caught in the middle of the world's two superpowers and a new proxy war was about to be fought, not on the track or in the pool, but on the sidelines. Entire villages have been wiped out, deliberately, by the Soviet invading forces. I can't say at this moment 
what other nations will not go to the Summer Olympics in Moscow. Ours will not go. And of course, while all this was happening, athletes were in their final stages of preparing for their pinnacle sporting moment, the day that they would be testing themselves against the best in the world. My name is Craig Beardsley. I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I'm actually 60 years old now, although I feel like I'm still in my 30s. And I was a you know serious competitive swimmer back in the day. Craig is as you'll hear, just full of joy. His enthusiasm is infectious. The way he talks about swimming tells you everything you need to know about how he became as good as he did. And so when did you start swimming? How old were you when you first started swimming? When we moved to New Jersey, I joined a summer league team. And it's just quite prevailing out here. A lot of small towns have summer clubs where you have counties and win ribbons. And that's where I really kind of got my first taste of swimming. And I will have to say my very first coach was a gentleman named Tom Stanley. He was a a Marine and he was just a wonderful man. And, you know, he would have a swim laps while he would do his 200 pushups on the side of the deck. And um, he was the one that actually taught me how to swim butterfly by tying rope around my ankles and having me move my hips up and down. Of course, you can't do that today. But back then, it was acceptable. But, you know, he instilled a love of the uh, of the sport. For me, the, the pool and swimming was a place for me to push myself to my own limits and, and to grow as an individual and to test myself. Craig was a young swimmer coming into the Moscow Olympics. Although he was recording fast times in the 200-metre butterfly, he still had a lot to prove, both to himself and, in his eyes, to the world. You want to test yourself, right? And at the end of the day, the Olympics, maybe not so much today, but back in the day, was the platform to compete against the best and show you know, what you were made of. And I think, ultimately, every athlete wants to do that to see how far they can they can push themselves. Back then, news travelled slowly. You know, in the very beginning, when there were rumours about a boycott, you know, no one thought it was going to happen. Nobody really thought something like that was going to happen. But you also have to remember back then, it was, it was a different world, right? I mean, there was Iran hostage crisis. We were still in a cold war. You know, Russia was the Soviet Union. I think as a 19-year-old, you know, in the beginning, I supported it. I thought, okay, if this is what our country wants, you know, I should be an American and do what's do the right thing. But it wasn't that easy. Craig had been training for years for this moment. And in fact, just a month before the games were due to start, he'd set a new world record of 158.21 seconds in the 200-metre butterfly. He was surely, surely on track for a gold medal in Moscow until Jimmy Carter made that announcement. I remember kind of being in the disbelief, you know, and maybe still with the hope that someone might come in last minute and change that decision and we, we could go again. I think especially it was hard because if you recall the 1980 Winter Olympics were in Lake Placid and we had just come off probably in America, United States, one of the greatest sporting achievements ever, the Miracle on Ice right, where we had these amateur hockey players knock off the Soviet Union professionals. And 
I saw what that did for this country and what it did for all the athletes here and how it just kind of really got people excited. And then to go from that high to this absolute low just kind of amplified this whole feeling of emptiness. You know, if we wanted to try to go to the Olympic Games, there was an underlying message that you were unpatriotic. While the president couldn't dictate the decisions of individual athletes or the governing body, the USOC, he was able to exert significant political pressure on them to align with him. And, well, it worked. Craig, just months away from competing, was told, you're not going. And it wasn't just him. He talked about Tracy Corkins, also a swimmer, a three-time Olympic medalist by that point. 1980 could have been her year, and she had the potential to win up to seven medals. That's the stuff of legends. Numerous other American athletes were in the same boat. But Carter didn't want the boycott to be limited to the US. He was relying on his Western allies and other allies to fall in line. He even sent Muhammad Ali on a tour of African countries to try and lobby them to support the boycott. And that's where us Brits come in. Because Margaret Thatcher, Prime Minister at the time, she supported Carter. Margaret Thatcher, then Prime Minister for about a year, was very serious in her attempts to back up the boycott, which was led by the American president, Jimmy Carter. And she was very keen as a novice prime minister to say, you know, we're best friends with America. However, the British Olympic Association is not a government organisation. And crucially, it's not dependent on the government funds in order to carry on existing. And it doesn't need government approval to do what it wants to do, like take part in the Olympic Games. And when Thatcher attempted to establish a boycott, the BOA decided it was about libertarianism rather than about nationalistic politics. And therefore, it was a matter for the individual or at least for the individual sports organisation involved. It was a painful split, a pressure weighing down on the athletes who had trained for years to get to this point. My name is Jocelyn Hoyt-Smith and I competed in two Olympic Games. I ran the 400 metres and the 4x4 relay. Got a bronze medal, which I'm really happy about. I wasn't at the time, but I am now. <laughs> Jocelyn moved from Barbados to the UK when she was seven years old. And I went to a school in Leeds. And I found Britain very strange because I didn't like wearing shoes. So it was really tricky uh, going to school and having to wear shoes. But I started running and I could beat everybody at school. And I remember Miss Adamson saying to me, you're going to be a good runner. Justin didn't really think that much about running at first. She wasn't that serious about it. But when she went to secondary school, she started to struggle. She was dyslexic, but she didn't know that back then. Her PE teacher at the time, who was also her maths teacher, began to help her after school and also got her involved in running. She started winning school prizes, and soon she was running for England. And as a young black girl in a predominantly white school who lived up north while all the main competitions were down south, she began to see sport as a way of opening doors to her. I remember watching the Olympics and watching Valery Bortsov. He was a Russian athlete. And I had a picture of him on my wall. He was, in my eyes, the 
brilliant sprinter, absolutely brilliant sprinter. And when I got chosen for the Olympic Games, it was something unbelievable. People around me were really proud and really pleased. And I remember travelling to collect my kit. I remember keeping it close to me because I didn't want anybody to take it in the house. It, it's a really strange feeling to be selected for the Olympic Games. And it's a really strange feeling when you're in a community with other people that are doing the same thing as you, regardless of the, the competition, regardless of the event. It's a massive, massive family. And there's a feeling of tremendous support. Don't forget that for people like Jocelyn in 1980, they were amateurs. It was far away from the sleek professional setup that you see in major athletics today. Jocelyn had a job and running was more like a serious hobby for her. And against the backdrop of rising political pressure, these athletes also had to contend with losing money if they went. Some of them were risking their jobs. A policeman and shot putter called Jeff Capes lost his job as a result of his decision to go to Moscow and didn't even get a medal for his sacrifice. These weren't household names protected by commercial partnerships. They were really on their own out there. The government didn't want us to go as a, as a team representing Great Britain. But a number of athletes, including myself, we'd worked hard. And I know through growing up about the apartheid and sport and various other things, but I'd set in my heart that I was going to go. And I had the opportunity to go and I was determined to go. But before I went, I had to have an interview with my boss. And it was the social services in, uh, in Sheffield. And I was told, I was given a list of things that I shouldn't do when I got to Moscow. And I laugh now when I think about it. One of the things I was instructed is not to sleep with anybody in that country, not to exchange any money in that country. And there was a list of things. And I thought, well, I, I wouldn't do them anyway in whatever country I went to, not just Moscow. But not everyone felt the same. One equestrian, a show jumper, believed it was the right decision not to go. I spoke to uh, Lucinda Green, Lucinda Pryor Palmer as was, and asked her if she felt any regrets about not going to Moscow. She would have been in a serious chance of a medal, probably, I mean, quite probably a gold. And she said, no regrets at all. The idea of Russia, Soviet troops being in Afghanistan made it just impossible for me to go to Moscow. I, I didn't consider it and I've never regretted it for a second. In the end, there were four sports that listened to Thatcher. Hockey, shooting, sailing and equestrianism. So, on the 19th of July, 1980, the Soviets held that opening ceremony at the Luzhniki Stadium in Moscow on a hazy, smoggy day. And, sure enough, a significant number of athletes were missing. And how many countries in the end did join the boycott? 18 nations took part. It was the smallest turnout since uh, 1956. There were 66 boycotting countries and another 15 who took part but competed not under their own national flags but under the Olympic flags. One of those was Great Britain. Olympiad. There's this incredible film, the official film, made in Moscow to celebrate the Games. It's called possibly the most Soviet name that you could give it. O-Sport! You Are Peace! Olympiad. 
Oh sport, thou art peace. And in its own slightly warped way, it dealt with the controversy at the very start. It's a pity that not all countries have participated, and it is most probably due to the political interference in sports. I can think of visual images, that bloody bear, this cheerful, smirking Misha the bear, trying to tell us that it was all absolutely lovely when it all absolutely wasn't lovely. Up goes the uh, red flag with the hammer and sickle again. There we go again. But also, I remember weather was real competitive sport in there, and that was in the athletics arena. And of course, it was between the British athletes, Sebastian Coe and Steve Ovet, and their tussle over the 800 and the 1500 metres was one of the duels for the ages. And tell me, did the Olympics, did that Moscow Olympics feel noticeably different when you were watching it, when you were watching different competitions, different events, did you feel that something was different? There was an uh, oppressive feel about it that came even on the television and even with the, the BBC boosters doing the commentary. And partly it became for, you know, what a surprise, the Soviets have won another gold medal. And now we move over to the shooting and the Soviets have won another gold medal. I mean, one of the exciting, the most important things about sport is that you don't know what's going to happen next. At the at Moscow, you did, and that was rather oppressive. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 ready to get 20 20, ready to get 15 15, 15 15, just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And Moscow felt different for some of the athletes who had actually made it there. I'm Sharon Davis. 
Olympic silver medalist in swimming from 1980, but was in the 76, 80 and 94 Olympics competing. And Tokyo for me would be my 12th Olympic Games consecutively, either working or swimming, basically. Wow. Gosh, that's a lot of Olympics. Sharon Davies, a Team GB swimmer, was only 17 at the Moscow Olympics, but as you just heard, by this point she was already a pro. She'd already been to Montreal in 1976, aged just 13. Moscow was a whole different experience. Yeah, I mean, it was a difficult Olympics, you know, there was no doubt about it. There wasn't a lot of colour. I remember being on the underground, there wasn't a single piece of graffiti. The place was absolutely spotless. Uh, We had not a lot to keep us entertained in the Olympic Village. They had put on these most wonderful ballets and concerts, but for a bunch of teenagers, I'm not sure they're (laughs) going to go to a Mozart concert, you know, or a Tchaikovsky reading or whatever. They they were much more interested in something more modern. And of course, that wasn't what Russia were famous for or were offering at the time. So it was difficult. Silly things like Colin Moynihan, who is now Sir Colin Moynihan or Lord Moynihan, he was the cox in the in the eights. And I remember the guy stapling a tinfoil gun to the inside of his bag when we came through security. And the rest of us knowing this was going to happen. And then him being held up by a load of Kalashnikov rifles. <laughs> oh, so that's our entertainment one day. Um, <laughs> the food fight in the halls. Again, it was back to entertaining ourselves. And so this was the backdrop. But of course, the thing about sport at this level is that, of course, in the moment, in the moment of competition all of the political stuff melts away. As soon as Sharon reached the pool, as soon as Jocelyn hit the track, the rest, it just didn't matter. They were going to do what they had trained for their whole lives. So tell me about your 400 metre silver win. Oh, gosh. Uh, Well, I was the only non-communist in the whole final. So there was 12,000 people in the stadium who all happened to be Russians, apart from a very few, including my dad, who was there given an opportunity to stay in the toilet right before the competition because the nerves were extraordinarily high, I probably would have done. But it's one of those weird things, isn't it? That's what you're, you know, that's, you, I'm trained to do that. So the moment the gun went and the race began, you go into automatic mode and, and you race. Sharon Davies won silver. Jocelyn Hoyt-Smith won bronze in the 4x400 relay. What were you hoping for? on the track. I wanted to get a personal best achievement and I wanted to make an Olympic final. Uh, I wanted to say that I'd done the very best that I could have done in whatever circumstances there were. And I think I, I think I did that. I know I did that. The story that really fascinated me, though, was Craig's. Having broken the world record just a month before the Olympics started, Craig did something else extraordinary. After a Russian called Sergei Fesenko won gold for the Soviets in Craig's event. Craig smashed his own world record again 10 days later. It was more than a second faster than the time that Fesenko had swam to win the gold. I mean, how painful is that? He couldn't compete, but he knew he was faster. Tell me, have you ever spoken with Sergei Fesenko, the guy who did win the gold? Yes. So, you know, so I have to say, this is an interesting point about the Olympics, right? Not, and not only Sergei Fesenko, I'm going to take a broader approach to this, is, you know, the Soviet team, you know, being there in 1980, they were denied 
the opportunity to swim against the best people in the world as well. Sergei Fisenko, I know he, he and I, you know, would have wanted to swim against each other. And listen, I was faster in my trials, but, but that doesn't mean anything. You know, we weren't, who knows what would have happened if I went to Moscow, right? But with the benefit now of hindsight, do you think that the boycott worked? Do you think that a message was sent to Russia? No, absolutely not. No, the boycott was just, you know, a futile attempt of, you know, wave, waving our flag, right? It, it, it was useless. And again, he created another boycott in 84. And, and I, 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 I guess the important lesson that we can learn is these things really don't work. So let's not ever do it again. Craig told me in our really delightful interview, genuinely one of those sorts of conversations that you leave just feeling more optimistic and more hopeful about life and about people. He said that he often was asked one simple question, would he rather hold the world record or have an Olympic gold medal? And he says, actually, that's an easy question to answer. The world record is undoubted. You are the fastest person, not just on that one day, but everywhere but he admits that it's not without sadness because those principles that are enshrined in the Olympic Charter that outline a set of values, in athletes, those values become a kind of identity. Here's the thing with the boycott over time, right? As you probably are aware, the IOC does not recognize us as Olympians. The USOC, the US Olympic Committee does. So we're kind of in this lost zone. We don't really know who we are. And this is this is all of us, not just the Olympic swimmers, right, from 80, but all the athletes from 80. We're not really sure who we are, right? I mean, I've been to events where people have said outright to me, you're not an Olympian. No one's looking for any pity, you know? It, it, it's one of those things that it happened. Maybe the best thing that we that we can derive from it is to just share the story so it doesn't happen again. You're never going to get rid of politics and sports. But again, because of the Olympics, we are talking about things going on in other countries that we might not have talked about. So mm -hmm. it gives us a platform at least to have a discussion. And that was the problem with the, the Olympics. Like when you're not even there, you don't even have the opportunity to have a discussion. So we, we, we don't want, we don't, we don't really want to have that happen again. It would be natural for somebody like Craig, who missed out on that one shot of Olympic glory, to look back on the 1980 boycott with a sense of frustration. Craig went on to miss out on the 1984 team and retired from swimming shortly after. He now lives in what looks like an idyllic corner of the mountains in Pennsylvania. Things, I think, worked out okay for him. He's definitely a glass-half-full kind of guy. But there's no doubt that there was harm in the boycott. Athletes suffered, but... The question is, did the Soviet Union suffer? Jules Boykov is a former football player and now an academic. And in 2016, he published a book called Power Games, a political history of the Olympics. So for the politicians of the time, looking back, it's pretty hard to see that it really changed anything in terms of the Soviets' behavior. I mean, I know looking back at the media coverage at the time, Vice President Mondale was sounding a bit like a drama junkie, to be honest. He was saying things like the future security of the civilized world hangs in the balance. Those are his words about the civilized world. Uh, 
in the reality, it, it really didn't. I mean, the world just kept tick-tocking along. From the athlete perspective, what it really did was it just engendered a lot of bitterness on the part of numerous athletes. From the United States, where I'm coming to you from, there are still Olympians around the country who are extraordinarily bitter about being deprived of their opportunity to participate in those games. And so I think that's really contributed to the general idea that with boycotts, it's really athletes who tend to lose. I guess you could say in the many ways of looking at it, it was a bit of an epic fail, the boycott. On the other hand, you could say, and I think this applies to all boycotts, that for people that really were true believers that a country like the Soviet Union shouldn't host the Olympics, they at least got to stand in their own beliefs and stand true to them. I mean, I don't want to dismiss that possibility. There were perhaps some symbolic victories out of it, but in terms of the material money shuffle, uh, not so much. Jules is more articulate than I am, and he's right. It's the symbolic and the material. That's what we're talking about here. An act can, of course, have symbolic power, if not material power. And so the success of a boycott depends on which metric you're using. It seemed clear that the boycott didn't have a political material impact. The Soviet Union continued for another nine years. But it did have symbolic power. After all, we're still talking about it. The thing is, is it continued this tit-for-tat symbolism because four years later, it was America's turn to host the Olympics. Good evening. The Soviet Union will not be taking part in the 1984 Olympic Games to be held in Los Angeles. And inevitably, the Soviet Union returned the favour. The Soviet Union accuses the United States of using the Games for political purposes. At least 14 countries from the Eastern Bloc fully boycotted the 84 Games. It had an impact insofar as the fact that the Soviet Union and their allies, 50 nations in all, had a boycott. And that affected some of the events. Uh, The gymnastics in particular was a much uh, poorer event without the the Soviet gymnasts in there in in sporting terms. But also it was quite obviously a tit-for-tat boycott. It was just so obviously playground that I think that's the whole world just roll their eyes and say, well, what are we doing? What are we doing? This is supposed to be sport. We're supposed to be testing the best athletes against each other. What is the point of it if we say, actually, we're not going to send them and they're not allowed to go? But this podcast hasn't just been a trip back to a rather fascinating moment in Olympic history for the sake of it. The question of participation really matters today, right now. Can I ask you why people are kneeling, blindfolded and shaven and being led to trains in modern China? Why, what, what is going on there? One year from today, the Winter Olympic Games begin in Beijing, but there are calls for countries to boycott those games. A coalition of 180 human rights groups is urging governments to not send their delegations over reported human rights abuses in China. Tokyo 2020 might just be weeks away, and for now, that's where most people's attention is focused. But I think the question is Beijing 2022, the next Winter Olympics. It's the first time that a city will have hosted both Summer and Winter Olympics, but it's not the first time that questions have been raised about China's record on human rights and whether awarding it such a huge prize, the role of host city, is appropriate given the revelations of devastating human rights abuses being perpetrated against the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. I'm actually, as a side note, writing a short book on the 1936 Olympics in Hitler's Germany. And 
some of the very same arguments and tropes from 1936 are happening in 1980 for these games. And then again in 2022 with the Beijing Olympics as talks of boycotts uh, heat up there. Mm. So just talk me through the, that same set of questions that you, that you see repeated yeah, well, it always starts with the athletes, and the argument is always that it's really the athletes who get hurt. Second point is almost always that sports shouldn't get involved in politics. I think you can tell from my tone that I think that's just a pipe dream. And um, also that it won't do any good. So there's this sort of efficacy argument that, hey, if we miss these games, it's not even actually going to change anything. I'd say those are some of the major strands in arguments that just talk me through the argument around the 2022 Beijing Olympics, because I suppose, you know, there was the 2008 Olympics in Beijing where there were questions around human rights and about, you know, the broader political situation. Now we know more about the situation in Xinjiang with the Uyghurs. Talk me through how those arguments have developed since 2008. Well, I think you're really smart to go back to the 2008 Olympics as a starting point because before those Olympics in 2001 when Beijing was vying for those games, the deputy mayor of Beijing said that if Beijing were allowed to host the Olympics, it would help improve democratic practice in the country, it would bring around a human rights heyday. And the International Olympic Committee bought that hook, line, and sinker and handed those Olympics to Beijing. Well, unfortunately, nothing of the sort happened. In fact, if you listen to Sophie Richardson, who's the China director at Human Rights Watch, she argues that actually the 2008 Beijing Summer Olympics were a catalyst for further abuses. It was a way of test driving surveillance systems, in fact, selling some of these surveillance systems to countries around the world. And so at the second time that Beijing rolled around and was applying for the Olympics, this is in 2015, going for the 2022 Winter Games this time, the International Olympic Committee should have known that what they were told back in 2001 never came to fruition. And yet, the International Olympic Committee voted for Beijing to take those games. Jules made a really important point while we were talking, and one that I think gets forgotten. When Beijing won the 2022 Winter Olympics, there actually weren't that many other options on the table for the IOC. Most of the cities that might have been more obvious or easy choices had dropped out. Munich, Oslo, Stockholm. Only Almaty in Kazakhstan and Beijing were left, and neither of those is famous for their commitment to democracy. In the United States right now, I think it's fair to say that China has become sort of a bipartisan punching bag. And I think it's something that we need to be aware of as we walk toward the Beijing Olympics. It's just all too easy for politicians on either side of the aisle, Democrats or Republicans, to make all manner of claims about China, some of which are true, some of which are not really. Another source of fight back against maybe hosting the Olympics in Beijing is human rights groups. I have much more respect for their position generally because they're evidence-driven arguments around the things that are happening with human rights. And, you know, they argue that essentially if you look at the Olympic Charter that guides the actions of the International Olympic Committee, there are all sorts of amazing ideas about freedom and uh, universal notions of what's fair. And it's not what's happening in Beijing. And so the argument from those human rights watch groups. It's just a clash of principles. The International Olympic Committee's charter says one thing, and what we're seeing in Beijing and China more widely is very much another. 
And so the question is, what should the international community do about it? Jules makes the point that governments often try to use the Olympics as a way to publicly launder and improve their reputation and their image. They get diplomats from around the world coming to shake their hands. They can look respectable and organized by running a good games. It's the definition of good geopolitical PR. Basically, there's this concept of sports washing, which is the idea that governments use sporting events to try to launder their international reputations on the global stage. In other words, if you're a human rights abuser and you can host one of these big events, you can look really important, you can announce the opening of the games, you can have all these diplomats come from around the world and shake your hand in front of the cameras, and that actually lends an air of legitimacy. So sport washing has very much come under pressure lately from human rights groups and activists around the world and trying to stop the benefits of sports washing. You know, I would also say that I feel like a lot of times sports washing is thrown at countries like China or Russia, but I think it can also be thrown at places like the United States, which is hosting the Los Angeles Olympics in 2028. And look at the United States. I mean, Guantanamo Bay hosts numerous people from around the world who've been sitting there for years upon years without charges. We've got people at the border uh, living in cages. Uh, we have in Los Angeles itself, you've got this sort of humanitarian crisis in plain sight of homelessness. And so hosting the Olympics in Los Angeles can be a way of diverting attention away from those horrific humanitarian crises in your own town, even if you're not necessarily considered an authoritarian regime. And so given that, a boycott is a way to avoid that. It avoids giving a sense of legitimacy. But that might be it. And on the other hand, participation, inclusivity, well, those might be stronger forces for change. Just think back to that moment with Jesse Owens at Hitler's Olympics. Hitler held the 1936 Olympic Games in Berlin as a great celebration of Nazism. What's it remembered for? The triumph of Jesse Owen. We can re remember uh, the triumphalism, Lady Reifenstahl's films of it, but the, the star of that film, the star in, in history, is the black runner whose hand was not shaken by Hitler. And so the story of Moscow is, in hindsight, I think, a story about a myth and about how it was perhaps finally dismantled, the myth that sport is pure, that it can operate outside the grubby reality of politics. The Olympics are a moment of grand political theatre, where the issues of the day are concentrated. The world wars, black power, the Suez crisis, apartheid, the clash of East versus West, they've all been articulated in sport and by sport. And in Beijing in 2022, the same will be true, at a time when the unthinkable has happened, where talk of concentration camps has returned, and of an attempt of a wholesale eradication of a group of people through re-education, separation and torture, an all-too-familiar question hangs in the air. What will the world do? Thanks so much for listening this week. And if you enjoyed this episode, then I think you should join Tortoise. We're a bunch of journalists trying to do things differently, opening up and inviting our members, hopefully soon to be you, to help shape our ideas. 
and our work. You can get involved in tons of different ways. All you need to do is go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash friend and use the code BASHA50, that's my name, B-A-S-I-A 50 for a special discounted price. Thank you and we'll see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow-up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. We're supposed to learn from our own mistakes, but other people's errors can be instructive too. From efforts to control the weather that went disastrously awry to the untimely death of the Segway boss, History is a treasure trove of mishaps and meltdowns that can teach us all. I'm Tim Harford, host of Cautionary Tales, the podcast that mines the greatest fiascos of the past for their most valuable lessons. Listen to Cautionary Tales wherever you get your podcasts.